0: said we are not responsible for our oppression but must be responsible for our own liberation in this first episode of diaspora disorientate we're going to address white allyship and saviorism and try and find the correct approach or means to our emancipation as the poc in muslim diaspora so the key to our liberation is as malcolm x says here um, to reclaim the narrative to make this our liberation our movement But also to understand the systems of oppression and how they come about. And here I'm using plural because there are multiple systems of oppression and they intersect. And it's important to understand how they intersect um, and how to detect them, of course, in order to be able to dismantle every single one of them. So throughout the coming episodes of this podcast, I'd love to try and tackle these issues, um, find the correct approach to every single one of them and do so while keeping the conversation in a framework that is relevant and uh, timeless and also quite friendly. So it will be more of a friendly chat and the discussions that I'm gonna have on the show with the different guests will be more of of a spontaneous chat on the topic. And I love to convey my points in a way that Reaches people well and that is not too distant and that doesn't touch people. So, perhaps to give you a hint of uh, where I'm coming from, what systems I have sensed throughout my life, Um, I first was confronted with Islamophobia and then, you know, the xenophobia, the racist tone in local politics in Austria, then also anti colonial struggles such as the one in Palestine, and then just reading more into local and global politics and economic issues, you try to build connections from those and get a clearer image. And you start going from um, tackling, for example, Islamophobia in a completely separated manner and uh, maybe handling economic issues in a very class reductionist way to making connections between the two and understanding a more complex image, and understanding also how both come about, and the motivations that lie behind all of those. And for many people with similar experiences, specifically in the diaspora, post-colonial theory has been a gateway to understanding these manifold uh, issues. And here I'd like to go back to remind you that the liberation is ours, and the narrative is ours to claim, to reclaim. And here we have to be critical of so many things, especially the terms we're using. Um, so I'd like to start off with the term post-colonial, which I've mentioned right now. And the term itself is a colonial term, and we should try and avoid using that as well and understanding why we're using it. So the prefix post in post-colonial implies that the ear of colonialism does not extend past the post-colonial and pre-colonial era as well, since there is also the pre-colonial era. So the colonial powers are free from blame outside the colonial time frame. Uh, So that when we're talking about the current so-called post-colonial, previously colonized world, then any issues that we're dealing with there are not to blame at all on the colonizing forces So we end up tackling colonialism in a very reductionist manner and are unable to fully grasp the issue or tackle uh, current issues like neocolonialism. So that a complete unbiased narrative, we're unable to go on about our problems. And such reductionist labels uh, used for the colonized world are nothing uncommon. Uh, They keep appearing when talking in uh, political terms and cultural terms. So the past few weeks, uh, my friend Zirar has been holding meetings um, that are now up on YouTube uh, on Orientalism, and he tackles these issues as well with the reductionist view of our culture and um, 21st century Orientalism, especially in photography. And in these meetings, he quickly addressed the issue of post-colonialism. And since we're using this uh, normalized term, this this construct of post-colonialism, then wouldn't this imply that we assume that the era of, the, of colonial presence is over and we're sort of left alone now in the so-called post-colonial world? Um, despite, of course, the reality of new colonialism and also a few exceptions um, of uh, for imperialist forces um, present in so-called troubled uh, zones or, or conflicts, So shouldn't that be our time to liberate ourselves alone, to finally reclaim the narrative? Because now we're seeing a lot of so-called white allies. And now in the context of Ramadan, I've been seeing a lot of tweets uh, shared on my friends' social media accounts and like Instagram stories um, from certain white people, and they're shared over and over again, and these would be tweets of a hadith or just wisdoms uh from the Prophet ﷺ or from generally Islamic wisdoms. Um and now specifically it would be about benefits of fasting, health benefits or social benefits of fasting. So Okay, so I understand what you mean. So
1: I, I think mm-hmm. I know this phenomenon. I've seen this briefly. I I typically avoid these kind of people on, on twitter or instagram because i find it i find it problematic for a few reasons because you you get these champions and these are not necessarily i wouldn't define them just as white i would just say non-muslim sometimes it's hard at all so I, I don't assume but you do have some you do have, have individuals who have a large audience on twitter or instagram and it's almost fashionable sometimes to post some things to seem tolerant to say i understand islam I'm with you. Islam is about peace, and these are, these are the ancient wisdoms of Islam. And and typically, I find it, you know, you can you can kind of categorize into the wider camp of white saviorism, but that's also a it's also a very reductionist way of putting everybody into one label. But some people definitely fall into that. And there's individuals who were long time Islamophobes and now they've become full on fighting against Islamophobe phobians, and that's interesting for me. But I know what you mm-hmm. mean. I find this interesting when it's fashionable to to preach a certain message or support a certain person or, or people because as people are talking about this, it's almost like we're the victims and we need someone to come in and say, let me tell people Islam is okay and, and fasting is okay. Yet I find that, mm-hmm. you know, I, we don't really need their validation. Is that is this what you're essentially referring to? The, this element of repeating and taking over our narratives to tell people these guys are okay. Um, whereas, I feel like we don't really need that to be told. Is that what you mean?
0: Yeah, precisely. Um, so that reminded me a bit of um, you know some aunties and uncles who would uh, cheer when they see some politician um, saying Ramadan Kareem to us, um, even though that person would be complicit in their oppression towards us or towards people of the global south, who we should be whose rights we should be advocating for. But they'd get happy about this little PR move. Yeah. so that reminds me a bit of that and also social media specifically is a platform that we have for ourselves it's the one thing everyone has access to and i believe it should be the platform we should all be using our voice on and that's the the easiest way to reclaim our narrative and it's it's quite disappointing to see so many people proceed to give their platforms to white people again So, is it understandable? Like, do we maybe need that admiration for uh, Islamic wisdoms from white people? Is that maybe more positive than I see it? Do we need that representation among those Muslims?
1: I think some people listening will say, "Well, it's okay as long as people are spreading positivity about Islam. We shouldn't discourage it." And to a degree, I I agree with that, especially especially. If that person has a wide audience. So you do get some celebrities who are Muslims or, or models or musicians and they're and they're really culturally Muslim, but every now and then they'll say something about Islam and the followers will will read and they will say, Well, this is good. I, I need to hear something positive. So mm-hmm. to a certain extent, I think it's good. We do have more the more positivity we have about Islam and understanding it's good. People should learn more about Islam. I think the I think the problem, the area of concern really if you want to be really critical about this comes in is if someone is dedicating dedicating their time and platform to essentially hijacking on these events or these cultural phenomenons or or spirituality when it suits a certain dialogue or you want to impress a certain following or you just want to get to a new audience and i and i see people on instagram often who mm. who do this and because they know if they post something They'll get, you know, hundreds and thousands of followers from a certain country or region. And, and you know, I, I know what you mean. I, I feel like we, we don't need their validation, especially when we have politicians who do the same thing. They'll go to a masjid and they'll, and they'll say, you know, we're here to support mm-hmm. Islam. And, and yet that same politician is the one who, who launched a war in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. <laughs> And yeah yet but, yeah, but yeah, they're okay to become and then as Muslims, we should be shaking hands. So politics aside, I think there's a, this space for this space for, I think, building bridges with, with non-Muslims. but I think we really do have to be wary when, as Muslims, we are retweeting and reposting content that is about Islam from a non-Muslim because we feel like it cleans us because it, it purifies our, our religion because a non-Muslim. A white non-Muslim has, has repeated it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think people listening should just be wary of the context and how it's being said and who's being said by because we have a lot of Muslim scholars on, on, on social media now who who do share daily wisdoms and, and ideas and teachings, teachings of the Prophet. Peace be upon him, that we should really be paying more attention to than these, um, these short tweets by people who don't really understand much about our religion. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, so... Now that's, that's online, but offline there's a lot of um, events organized by Muslims and uh, non-Muslims as well in POC communities in the West. So there's often, you know, there has to be a white guest or a guest from like a predominantly white institution who is not quite familiar with um, perhaps the discrimination that a lot of the people in those uh, events experience. Um, but they're seen as so-called allies and it just gives the whole event perhaps a better image or it gives it a bit of a validation, the organizers. Yeah, so, I
1: really don't like that. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. It's interesting because, you know, I don't see anything wrong with working with people. If you look at Malcolm X mm-hmm. and, and when he was working against against the, the oppression of blacks in the U.S. And if you compare him to people like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X's approach always was, we're happy for you to join our movement. So this is post-Nation of Islam. But he said, mm-hmm. you should be very wary when a white man is leading, these are his words, leading the cause for you, when he's the one cheering for you in the front. You can join in the back, but if you're, if you're assuming the position of a leadership in a cause that has nothing to, directly for you to do, I think you should be mm-hmm. suspicious. And I have the same, this this happens throughout the world. For example, we we use white, European travelers to promote the tourism industry in the East. If a white influencer does something, we, in fact, we pay them and we promote them to come. And I think Saudi Arabia has done something last year around this. And essentially it was just only white European and Americans coming in. Why did we need those faces to to promote our culture? And the same thing happens offline in causes. You're right. I think there was something happening recently about COVID-19. I think it was in Pakistan and there was an Australian cricketer who's white, telling people to stay home and and raise money. And this was for the audience of Pakistan, I think, or maybe mm-hmm. maybe the West. And, and it was just like, why do we need, you know, the connection was so far. So far, I don't understand why we need those faces to tell us that we will now listen because a European or American is telling us. So it must be, yeah, the, the advice must be valid, you know, it has, has some truth to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... In that case, or the the few cases that men- you mentioned, those are examples of white saviorism rather than true allyship that we can benefit from. Or how would you exactly define the two? And when does um, white allyship as well become something dangerous?
1: Do you mean alliance working working with non-Muslims, on for example?
0: Yeah. How how much yeah, yeah How much can we allow them to? Um, make this be involved in the decision making if at all and and how present should they be in like our movements
1: okay so i so i i go with the i go with the phrase non-muslim rather than white because i feel like we do now have a very diverse set of challenges that are coming into our communities and and not necessarily amongst just just non-muslim or not just amongst white whites Mm -hmm. um i think with alliances it's important to look at the values that you hold as an organization or as a cause so if you look at the palestinian cause or if you look at the syrian friends for syria and there's certain movements you know that Mm -hmm. that begin in the west there's a free iran movement free syria movement or free syrian army there's a lot of really interesting names that come up that sound really interesting to uh to someone who's paying attention because a lot of these are typically run by western think tanks and they may have a a token Palestinian or Syrian amongst them as a, yeah. as a name, but they typically they're run by think tanks funded by groups. You don't really know who, you know, who these guys are. And often you find that actually is non-Muslims who are aligned to certain political organizations. So you really have to be careful if you support a political cause in the West and, and you hear these movements who join you in protests and in Palest in Palestinian protests have always had, I think alliances with a lot of other um, you can call them liberal or, or mm-hmm. socialist movements, at least in the UK, and and they've been welcomed, typically, because there's a shared goal: free Palestine. For example, everybody wants that. They, mm-hmm. I think the challenge becomes is the question of leadership: who's running these movements? And my, I always look up the website, the names of the founders, and the story mm-hmm. on who these people are, because it's you know it's not about suspicion; it really is about authenticity and who's running these movements because just based on our past and, and historical records, we really do need to be careful in, in terms of who are we funding, who are we supporting, and what their motivations are. So just to be safe, yes. and this is not to say everyone who's non-Muslim or questionable or suspicious or worth of worthy of suspicion. I think it's just safe to understand who you're dealing with. And and the alliances can be can be, can be good, but you really do have to align your values so if you're working with LGBT movements, and that's a common alliance that's typically found in Palestinian solidarity campaigns or mm-hmm. in, in, in the US, I think there's been protest against Islamophobia and, and you have LGBT communities that turn up. And and that and that raises an interesting question. You know, do you do you take support from people who disagree with you on, on other things but agree with you on other on, on some things? And that's really mm-hmm. on the individual to decide. On an organization level, I think that's different. But I think we just have to understand our values and say, do we have the same vision that's, yeah. that's wide reaching than just maybe one or two bullet points?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also have the fear that if people open the doors for such alliances, that they alter their um, values or the approach they take for the sake of, of um, you know, embracing possible allies' values and, and like welcoming them in the future. Um, because those allies would not understand this, the struggle of these movements completely, because they come from you know different uh, cultural backgrounds, or they simply did not undergo the same struggle. So they would want a more perhaps liberal approach, or you know, not the full set of values that these movements would originally carry. So that could be fatal to the movement as well. Yeah, so. I,
1: I agree. It's it's a you really have to understand. Yeah, how to run these things and who's running them. In terms of support, yeah. I, think, I think we should welcome non-Muslims to support. If they want to donate, is fine. If they want to help out, volunteer, is fine. I think it's a question of, when it comes to strategy, vision, and how these things are organized and run, then I think you really have to be careful with who's running them. And that's just, I think that's just, I think that's just um, a pragmatic approach that all organizations take anyway. But as Muslims in the West, we just really have to be, because today is different from 20 years ago. Now we do have a large Muslim diaspora in the West who are educated, Mm -hmm. second, third generation, who do have connections to the homeland, who are also quite educated in the West. For example, people like you and I, we understand the struggles of the West and the East. So there's no reasons why people like you and I should not be leading these movements and the question just comes down to is Mm. if we're not why are we not doing it and maybe we should be doing more
0: of it yeah i feel like a lot of people are held back from leading such movements because of the inferiority complex which is of course rooted in colonialism again and this is quite sad that it lives on after colonialism and it's just another sign that colonialism has not died of course there's neocolonialism But also the very same colonialism that is said to be over is actually living on in a lot of our minds um, subconsciously and
1: yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think essentially it comes down to two things. I I have a lot to say on this Mm -hmm. topic, but there's a there's a really interesting book. I wonder if you've read this, anyone listening? It's called Invisible Man, and it's by it's Mm -hmm. by a chap called Ralph Ellison, and and so this is this he was he was a black american african american author i think i think he wrote his book around 1950s so he essentially in a, sim- in a similar position to muslims and i would highly recommend this book because so this is this is a black man who's who's i think it's new york the, the scene is set in and he's learning how to essentially he gets involved in politics and public speaking and he develops a talent for public speaking and writing speeches and he becomes a really well-spoken I guess public speaker Mm -hmm. and and he finds himself in movements which are typically which are actually majority majority run by white Americans and he gets really disillusioned and disenfranchised with the whole movement of black rights and he kind of fades away and disappears into nothingness and you really see the rise of where he thinks he can do good, where he thinks he has a place where he should be leading, but he finds he doesn't really, it's not for him to lead. So this book, which is about 70 years old now, it's it's kind mm-hmm. of true today in many circles in the, in the West, because Muslims, we we find platforms we think we're welcome to, whether these are genuine or not, but we find we can't go to the top in terms of leading the narrative. And this is why I think it's really critical to understand our confidence is not derived from someone else's approval or validation. And that typically mm-hmm. comes from, I think, an insecurity as a Muslim in the West. If you've been raised in the system of the European curriculum from an academic perspective and then culturally you will know very little about your own roots if you're an Iraqi or if you're Iranian or if you're South Asian yeah. or if you're from African. How many how many people listening really do know their background in, in a very detailed way compared to their own, to compared to the history of the country they're residing in. If you're living in Austria or Germany or the UK, we're taught the histories of these nations, but yet we pay very little attention to our own histories because we're told they're not really worth knowing and they're very simple to understand and they're very simple to explain. They can be filled out in a in a paragraph, and then that's your history done. So, as Muslims, when we when we grow up with this very concise history of our own people, we we don't really have the confidence in speaking out. We don't really have the confidence in in fighting for something. But I think this is changing. I think I think with the rise of social media and a wider, well-read Muslim second, third generation um, um, population, I think I think we are leading it. But why these people get the platform? I think I think it really just comes down to once i think they they just had an opportunity and I, and and we didn't step up but now i think and this is universal there's another element to this which is i think there's a sort of a weird obsession in helping mm-hmm. people which doesn't necessarily come from the the goodness of your heart i think it comes from an element of it defines who you are if you if you help those below you if you help people who you think mm-hmm. need help because your identity is defined by helping for example, this this whole phenomenon of is quite popular now in the West of having a gap year if you're a student and you spend maybe a few months in the summer in building an orphanage yeah. or digging a wall. It's a famous yeah, stereotype you now. It's a stereotype, yeah. right? Because at once it was really popular and it still happens. Actually, you see, you still see, you still see mm-hmm. white Europeans, you know, um, with 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 black children in in some. In the nameless African nation just standing next to them so so there's organizations that you pay to and by the way you have to pay to go to these quote experiences they don't pay you so you you pay oh. you pay a month two months you pay for your flights you pay for your accommodation and once you get there mm-hmm. you have this experience of helping somebody and you come back and the universities and employers look at that as a as a badge of honor to say this person really is understands the world, they've traveled. But this is really like a stamp to say, you've done something. So this goes beyond the student, this goes into the wider professional organizations. that still do this and, and the Melinda and Doe Gates Foundation is one of have criticized recently on this. It's almost like your mm-hmm. identity does not exist if you don't have a poor, black person to help if you don't have a, if you don't have someone from myanmar or if you don't have somebody from vietnam or someone from you know thailand someone poor who's dying if you don't have that that name on your own website or your own profile to say this is who you are this is these are the people you help you almost don't mm-hmm. you almost don't have any value and this is how i see orientalism and post colonialism where you still own a certain minority or certain people because they're weaker than you and they can't say no to your help. So they will take your donations and they will, you know, they'll dance for you and they'll take photos with you and they'll yeah. win you awards in photography and they'll win you accolades and charity dinners. So, so this, this phenomenon is still very, very widely present in many different forms.
0: Yeah. Um, I think this volunteerism, some people call it is essentially just feel good, uh, imperial expeditions because, um, how much how much does that actually or what good impact does that actually leave? Because if you look at those structures that they establish, um, there's a lot of foundations that um, don't establish permanent structures and they would only operate as long as uh, whoever is, is building that is still investing to that region um, and they often don't even consult the local population and they not ask them what they actually are in need of. First of all, this also not asking the local population, not speaking to them and just imposing something on them and um, telling them this is for your own sake. This has, there's so many parallels to colonialism, for example, back then um, during um, Napoleon's uh, invasion of of Egypt back then, they introduced the printed newspaper and people were at first partly delighted to have that, but then turns out it was just a means of propaganda. Of French propaganda, and they did that, of course, without consulting the locals, without actually working with them, and just imposing this um, progressive um, development onto them, yeah. without working with them. And that's there's so many parallels to that. That also,
1: yeah,
0: also this mentality that you spoke about—that we're coming here to help you—and this, um, you know, people, yeah, people like embrace those those uh gap years that they had and the the travels they did so it's again this sort of putting yourself in this savior role again um so my
1: question is so if we take this yeah. back into into i guess into the west as muslims are experiencing our narrative being taken over in some ways and we're also taking it back in many ways i think i think on the whole i think we're winning or we're improving from where we used to be. So, do you feel like do you feel like this is this is why a, a huge problem now in the West for young Muslims who are looking to volunteer and get involved in politics, and get involved in, um, I guess any any kind of any kind of work which requires, you know, I guess to, to be aware mm-hmm. of our situation back in the East. So, if you're Syrian, if you're Syrian living in Germany or living in the UK, you you know, I think ten years ago, if I remember, when the war started, roughly. Mm-hmm you know, these, these, these events are being run by organizations you had no idea who had ties to and who's funding them. So do you feel like as a, as a young Muslim, do you feel like you struggle with this in terms of understanding who, who, who to turn to and who, where to go and who's running something? Or do you feel like your voice is overshadowed by non-Muslims who are essentially representing a cause that you've been trying to represent for a long time?
0: Um I do think that there's still this issue, but we're still we're heading the right direction right now and I, I'm seeing some slow um developments in the right direction and people from the community getting organized together and rejecting any work with some major organizations that they know would not work in their favor, at least not systematically help them improve the situation and um there's also I think Part of the improvement is, is the change from the generation of our parents, perhaps maybe not the refugees coming the past decade, but the immigrants coming in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Maybe um, they had a different form of like organizing, so they had a more orthodox form of, um, for example, hosting charity dinners and and such events, cultural events, and now there's a more there's a different form of organizing that the young generation is bringing with them and this is more active and independent um, because such big events would also would always rely on bigger funding perhaps from the government itself actually so with the new forms among students for example it's it is looking quite better yeah yeah Um,
1: how do you deal with this as a young muslim how do you deal with this so all the the questions we've raised today and points we discussed how do you Mm -hmm. How do you process this, and how do you, I guess, how do you, how do you direct your own focus and attention when it comes to activities, and when it comes to resistance, or when it comes to raising attention or awareness for any any kind of cause? How do you deal with this?
0: Always remain critical of of who you're working with, understanding uh, what the interests of the people that you're working with are, especially if you're working with some bigger organizations, um, and try to be as like focus on your goal the most and so when people tend to focus on uh, for example the pr and getting a good reputation in um, either um, circles connected to the government perhaps or any bigger um, predominantly non-muslim or non-people of color circles um, and that just takes the attention of the work that you, you put your energy into something else essentially then and don't direct all of it into the actual work and mobilizing your own people uh, so to say so that is very important to to work with your own people because they share the same interest they share the same goals and yeah and then you would combine your energy and also combine your anger perhaps if, if you feel a lot of anger and um, that's an issue. I friends of mine have dealt with which is how to go on about your anger towards um, people of um, who benefit from our oppression let's say with the oppressions of, of um, the global south and minorities subjected to discrimination um, and you just have so much anger inside you and then you go on to work with organizations and groups that don't tackle them correctly so you just bury your anger and if you come together with people that share the same sentiments then this anger can give birth to something very positive and to to change that we need yeah Yeah. there's definitely
1: a need for 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 leadership i think i think a good teacher in in any situation is is the best way to 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 mold yourself and learn how to turn that um, Mm -hmm. frustration and anger into something positive which can help people and i think that's been it's been a difficult thing to find for a lot of people who want to get involved in a cause, yeah. any any kind of cause. And growing up I remember I struggled because I was always looking to help. For example, for me Palestine was a big topic in, in the two thousands. Mm. There was the war in two thousand and seven in Gaza and then in two thousand eleven there was another bombing of Gaza yeah. and it was just it was crazy and as as a Muslim I just didn't know where to turn to. And all the organizations were either run by socialists, which were run by non Muslims. Or mm-hmm. you know, there was no BDS back then, and the way it is now, so yeah. so it's it's changed a lot. And I think I think a lot of a lot of Arabs and and Muslims generally have come come to the West, either as refugees, or as students, or who've been raised here. And I think we've started to take back our own narrative and our own causes. Yeah, but that's interesting mm-hmm. because I know you're quite active in, in in a lot of causes. So I was curious to see how you would deal with this because. <laughs> I didn't have those platforms and those mediums to be involved. in. when I was growing up, you just turn up with a, you know, we're wearing something green for Palestine and you just, you know, you join the crowd and that was it. Someone gives you something to hold and you hold it. You know, these were signs were mass printed. You didn't know who was printing them and, and necessarily, you know, what was, you know, who Mm -hmm. who else was in the crowd. But anyway, those, those days are over for me. I don't do that anymore, but, but I can see now, I think people need to redirect a lot of their, frustration as as observers and 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 one final thought from me on this topic is as a as someone who's gone through the you know my twenties and understood how frustration can boil up and how politics can really overtake, you know, the because I think Muslims as young we're not even Muslims. I think as young people we have a lot of idealism that requires a direction and that requires a purpose. So rather than it go Mm -hmm. to waste, I think we have to really control it with our own faith. And remember that as Muslims we don't let anger direct us. We don't let frustration direct us. We have mm-hmm. to master and be be the god of our own, I guess, destiny. In a way, when it comes to these areas of self-discipline, you should control your frustration. You should control your um, hopelessness and say, "We're not people who are hopeless. We're not people who let anger drive us." And we turn yeah. to our Islam and the and and for me, the arts and and creativity has allowed me to kind of rein it in and say okay how else can i talk about these topics so you learn that if you're well read if you read books on topics you can articulate yourself better you can then you can have a position of 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 leadership because then you can speak and then you can write better so but if you're just angry and you and you want to lead an organization or a cause you don't have many tools to use right so i think we have Mm to we have to sharpen our intellect and and our vocabulary and our grammar so i think if your language skills are not up to shape I think you struggle in life generally. So if you're young and you're listening and you're thinking, oh, what can I do? Just start reading and start understanding your history and understanding how to articulate, how to vocalize the, the suffering, if you're Syrian of people in Syria or if you're Iraqi in and Iraq. And, mm-hmm. and these are the ways we can, I guess, have a, have a seat at the table where we have a meaningful dialogue rather than just seem like angry Muslims who are just, you know, who are ready to have another protest, another rally.
0: Yeah. And uh, because you addressed um, our past and understanding it, and our arts especially, um, so that's an issue um, that relates to the term that I addressed first, which is post-colonialism, which is, again, a very narrowed um, way of viewing a very complex era. And there's so many parallels when it comes to the global south and, and the terminology that's used to Categorize the different eras we have and the different um, like political and artistic eras as well. And a, a very essential thing is uh, in understanding our culture is understanding our arts and and how complex they are. Also literature and and everything regarding culture. And um, here the terminology is very important because you'll see a lot of people just classify. All of the so-called Islamic art under one term. Meanwhile, they would um, categorize, you know, the European forms of art into the different eras and locations. Eras, especially like Baroque, Renaissance, Romanticism, etc. And with our so-called arts, it would be just Islamic art, and you know, the like. Um, art or Islamic culture. So- or yeah. uh,
1: assuming that Arabic is the language of Islam and and everybody speaks Arabic if you're a Muslim, you're right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So it's like the arts of the um, Maghreb of of the North African countries are the same as those of um, the Indian subcontinent, even though it would be like different, not only different locations but also different times that we're talking about. So I think this is another thing to be careful about so we when we talk about our own um if we get the chance to talk about our own culture then address its complexity and try to like dismantle these um quite colonial terms that are used to describe us in our history yeah
1: yeah yeah and that's true it's very true <laughs>
0: Siddharth, thank you for joining us today and thank you all for listening. I really hope you liked the episode. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at diaspora underscore disorientate if you want to keep up with the latest episodes and if you want to contact us for questions, criticism or even requests for episode topics. So thanks again and peace.